0: Welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. Today's episode is a really fun and interesting conversation with the designer Louise Sandhouse. I first discovered Louise's work a few years ago when she published the book Earthquakes, Mudslides, Fires, and Riots, which is this really great book about the history of graphic design in California that I highly recommend you pick up. It's uh, full of great essays and is a really kind of well-designed graphic design book. Louise also teaches uh, at CalArts in Los Angeles and we talk a lot about the influence of CalArts on her work both as a designer and as a teacher. We talk about her interest in critical theory and where that came from and how that has changed her as a designer and how she thinks about design and we have this really interesting discussion on using form not as an ends in and of itself but as a way to represent ideas or to think about form as language. And then we talk about, you know, why does so much graphic design look the same today? And the role of criticism in kind of parsing some of that out. I really had a fun conversation with Louise. I really enjoyed this and I learned a lot and I'm so grateful for this conversation. And there's a lot in here, so let's get right into it. Here is my conversation with Louise Sandhouse. I was spending a lot of time this morning thinking about the things that I wanted to talk to you about. And I was really kind of struggling with how I wanted to start this conversation and, and what was a good way to set it up. And so I was re-listening to your interview with Debbie Millman on design yeah. matters from a couple of years ago, which I think might have been where I first came across your work, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. you said you said something in there that was really interesting and I remember, I specifically remember listening to this interview because I had just moved to California a couple months before and you were talking about the book and so I was very excited. I didn't know anything about California design at the time. Um, But you said something about, you know, planning to to go to Yale and then you went out to California and you met with Lorraine Wilde and you just kind of felt like, oh, this is, you know, this is where I'm supposed to be kind of thing. And right. as somebody who who a lot of ways, and I feel like so much of this project has been about me trying to figure out what was going on in, in the 90s, that there was such this critical discourse. And as someone who just missed that, often right. Yale and CalArts are kind of the two pillars <laughs> where a lot of that discourse came from. And so I was right. curious, and I, I don't mean for this for you to kind of like Pit one against the other, but what was it about? Kind of arriving at Cal Arts in the early '90s and thinking, "This is where I, where I'm supposed to be."
1: First of all, I want to contextualize this into Boston. Um, okay. You know, so this was um, in the late '80s, and you know, I had. A modernist education and graphic design you know that to me was the language of the design of design and if you wanted to be a player that's what you did mm-hmm. you know and in Boston it was it was highly refined and that's what it was about it was about a kind of very simple system very limited palette um, and you just did it with such incredible finesse and, you know, you, I wanted to be a player. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted mm-hmm. to play with the boys cause right. that's what it was all about. And if you wanted to do that, you went to Yale. Okay.
2: Um,
1: and so anyway, and what I do, so I, I, I had a friend at Yale, so, you know, I was able to go there and visit it, and, you know, it was being on the East Coast, you didn't really know California, you know, you didn't know any other place, and, you know, it was sort of early in the sense that uh, the next step in one's career was to go to grad school. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted to advance yourself professionally, you went to grad school. Right. You know, now it's more, more common. In fact, you know, more and more, um, you know, uh, des- they're not even designers yet. They're, yeah. You know, students seem to be going from undergrad to grad. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it just, you know, it, it just didn't dawn on me that there was anything else beyond beyond Yale hmm. to go to for all kinds of reasons. So when I did um, go out to, so just to clarify some facts uh, that I didn't go into detail in the conversation um, with Debbie, but I was put on the wait list for Yale. So I'm, you know, so this was a year that a lot of people were applying, and so I you know, it's, it's also the year when it, they know that Alvin Eisenman is retiring, uh, but they don't know who's taking over the program.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: here I am, you know, I'm waiting to find out whether I'm going to get in that class that year. Right. Uh, I'm a little anxious about, you know, what the transition is going to be between um, one director and another, one program director mm-hmm. and another. And, um, you know, feeling like so ready for grad school, I had begun teaching. Um, I, um, you, I, I could see the handwriting on the wall about a kind of cultural conversation about design. Oh,
0: interesting.
1: Uh, yeah, and also I was, it somehow um, befriended, um, I've gone completely blank on her name over at the MIT uh, media lab. Um, oh, who, uh,
0: Muriel Cooper?
1: Muriel Cooper, yeah, yeah, she was, you know, I was living in Cambridgeport, and her studio, which was essentially a garage at the time on the MIT campus, or near the MIT campus, um, you know, I had had some conversations with her, and so I could see that um, computers were going to end up impacting the practice field as well oh, wow. so you know every, everything everything um, was saying it's time for grad school to me
2: yeah.
1: um, you know so that's why I was even looking at that moment so when I was waiting to figure out what was going to happen at Yale I just went out to visit a friend who was living in Los Angeles and when I went to visit Lorraine and I, I might have related this story about, you know, I just went wanted to see her as a practitioner. I didn't know CalArts, I didn't know what that was, and I didn't know why when I set up a meeting with her that she wanted me to meet her there. Right. Um, but I did. And she starts showing me around like a prospective student. I thought she misunderstood yeah. why I was there. I come to find out, you know, I brought this up to her a few years ago. And she goes, well, it was kind of a ploy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice.
1: Yeah, so I'm looking around and everything about the vibe of this place, the work that was going on, the energy of the place, mm-hmm. just was shouting to me, you know. It just spoke to me, and I realized that what was inside and why I really was going to grad school was not to get indoctrinated, but right. to rebel. Mm. And so I recognized mm. my own rebellious spirit when I, when I'm just looking at Cal Arts, and it was funny because uh, uh, in, in every respect it was like that moment of recognition was the moment at which it became the launch pad to everything good that was to happen. Right. So, you know, so the biggest thing that happened was that I was, you know, becoming aware of who I was. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the next challenge came after I was accepted at CalArts, um, and then recognizing that I couldn't start right away.
2: Mm.
1: So, you know, at that point, I was probably about 30, so I was feeling pretty anxious, right. um, and I was forced to go back to school. For me to go to CalArts, I did have to get within a few credits of my undergraduate degree, and then completely could complete them at Cal Arts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, what it forced me to do was to go back to school. And it was only academic credits that I needed. I didn't need any studio credits. Oh. And it was such, um, <laughs> I just, I don't, you know, it's like I barely know where to begin to say how important yeah. And enthralling that experience was, and just what I needed. Mm. Um, so, I the school that would take me without matriculating because I could go, I could complete the BFA at Cal Arts was uh, Mass College of Art. I think the only, if not one of the only um, public art schools in the United States. Oh, okay. And the strange thing was you know, that I didn't need studio classes. I was just going to take academic classes there. Um, So it seemed kind of an odd choice, but providential. So um, there were people there, like this woman, Yasminka Udoviki, um, who comes from an Eastern, I think, a Yugoslavian um, family of educators, I think an important family of educators, who had been teaching at B C at Boston College, oh. and felt like it was it was teaching at a at a ski camp.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, and so she had switched over to teaching at Mass College of Art, and she had a class called the Intellectual History of Modern Europe. Oh wow! And I think everything that I'm able to think about today, or know today, is because of the tools. That class provided and sort of understanding major shifts of knowledge and thought um, since um, you know the modernity, and I, yeah. I think she sort of placed that around the 15th century. Um, so it just it gave me a place from which t- to view mm-hmm. the shifts um, that had caused change um you know and it just shifts in the paradigm so and then there were there were lots of other really important teachers there and experiences but the best one was i had a friend at the time who was actually teaching at bc a sociologist and, and i went to visit his class and met a woman there who was just sitting in on the class and started talking to her and she said, Oh, I actually just go around to all the great schools in Boston and take the classes I'm interested in. I just huh. audit them. Yeah. And I thought, Oh my God. Wow. You know, yeah. that's so cool. And i had been reading, um, this book called gyneces, okay. um, by Alice Jardine. So I was, I was interested in feminism, mm-hmm. and so I, I thought, wait a minute, she's teaching over at Harvard. I'll just go over there and <laughs> 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 <Yeah. laughs> see if I can just sit in on her class. And um, she um, completely welcomed me. Um You know, gave me you know the where to get the readings. You know, and this is all pre-internet, so I had to like go to a Kinko's or whatever it was at the time. That's amazing. Reader that was like four inches thick. Yeah, you know, and a few books. You know, and I I I didn't come from an academic background, so this was like, oh my god, uh, how do I read this? (laughs) Right, right,
0: yeah, yeah. I know what you. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's a, it's you know, it was like. This enthralling world opened up to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I found out what I was capable of. I got, um, I got exposed to all kinds of new ideas and challenges, and this, and this woman, this professor, kind of took me under her wing, like she thought it was, like amazing that a graphic designer, yeah. designer of any sort. Was beginning to critically challenge what they were doing. Hmm. Um, so, after I don't know, it's like 15 months of going back to school and experiences like that. Just the preparation to be able to take advantage of CalArts Arts. Yeah. Couldn't have couldn't have been more perfect or better.
0: Yeah. That's so, it's it's so interesting, too, because you, you actually started to answer what my next two questions were going to be. Um, and one of them was you said, you know, kind of as you were thinking about going back to school, that you were noticing um, that there was a certain, you know, cultural change happening in graphic design. And then knowing Mario Cooper, you were seeing the computer. But where did that how did you see that kind of cultural shift that was happening or that interest in theory around graphic design? What, what were the signs of that, that you were noticing? And then how did that kind of play out when you were studying back at school?
1: You know, I don't know what it was specifically, hmm. Yeah, uh, that was, you know, it, it may have just been hearing Muriel Cooper talk, um, you know and i i knew that somehow programming was going to reshape right. the world and mm-hmm. reshape how design prac designers practiced i guess something in my nature and again maybe that was the rebellious nature yeah. was beginning to question you know what was going on you know the other kind of significant thing that happened of course this was you know, right at the fringe of some kind of amorphous, dawning um, recognition of of cultural shifts. You know, right. one thing, you know, I, I started off this conversation uh, talking about Michael Rock. Yeah. And he was a friend at the time. And so I'm sure there must have been some conversations mm-hmm. with him um, that, that might have sparked some kind of awareness at the time, because it wasn't as if there were a lot of people who were begin who were talking or thinking critically about design. Right.
0: right, yeah, that's why I was kind of so interested that you were kind of aware of it, or you saw that happening before it, you know, kind of started to truly blossom, is, is interesting. Right,
1: right. So the other part of that, you know, and again, going back to Mass College of Art, there was, so when I, I realized I had to go back to school, mm-hmm. um, I looked at the list of classes that were available, particularly in a kind of st- continuing studies program. And there was one class, um, I don't remember the title of it, but it had something to do with postmodernism. Mm. And again, you know, this is around 1990, 91. Okay. I thought, this, I don't know what it is about this class, but I think I have to take it, and it sounds really interesting. So I went to register, and they said, sorry, this class is full. <laughs> I, I went, okay, all right. Yeah. Um, that night, I keep talking about my dreams, but that <laughs> night, I had a dream that my life would be changed if I took this class. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I called the school the next day and said, I have to take this class. Can I talk to the professor? Mm -hmm. And they gave me his contact info. And he said, well, you know, of course, if you're that interested, you know, come to the class. So that was, you know, as with the intellectual history of modern Europe, the class that changed my life the class that sort of became the launch pad of everything I was going to question or think about or get, um, get excited about that was going to shift my thinking that was going to cause see the world in a new way that was going to cause me to raise questions about the role of design. That was it. Um, this this teacher and I wish I could remember his name was so astoundingly good in the way that he delivered his his right. lectures, which weren't conventional lectures. You know, it's more like performance. Yeah. Same thing. At, yes. With um with Alice Jardine, mm-hmm. um at Harvard, you know, her lectures were more like performances. So f- even even teachers were, um were trying to reconsider their own pedagogical practices at the time. So when I get to, you know, after that experience and getting to California, that's when I fully realized it wasn't just theory.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In
1: California, these, this was a postmodern culture. And so, you know, to see that it was you know something that where the change changes and reorientation that I'd been studying in Boston were the reality of the nature of society and experience <laughs> right. in California or at least in southern
0: California yeah. where I was That I mean that's that's amazing I did not realize that you had Kind of started studying or thinking about kind of critical theory or cultural studies and modernism and postmodernism before you even got to Cal Arts. Were you before you before you moved to California and you were taking these classes? Were you looking at them or studying them through the lens of graphic design at the time, or was that or did you not kind of make that connection until you had moved?
1: I think I it wasn't until I got to Cal Arts that it manifested in the work that i was doing yeah um you know because i i knew it was raising bigger questions the things that i was studying in boston Mm -hmm. but i didn't know you know other than to just say this is wrong and that is wrong and you know we need to you know (laughs) we need to think more critically i mean you know what happened, you know, you just, you sort of imploded, you know, whole kind of postmodernism, the conversation had to evolve. Otherwise, the result was paralysis. Mm -hmm. You just questioned everything to, to death, and it was difficult to move forward. And even the work for a while just became kind of, you know, there were, I see two waves of kind of Postmodern stylistically, um, you know, one is the sort of pastiche, right.
2: um,
1: you know, but the other, the, the more, what had started to be the more critical, um, end of it that was taking place in the eighties at Cranbrook, you know, right. ended up coming sort of Ill- illustrations of those theories, mm-hmm. um, rather than in some way impacting, I mean, it did impact, um, what what we did and how we thought about what we did, but at the time it seemed more like illustration.
0: Yeah, you know, it's I I uh, one of my early interviews was with Michael Beirut, and he he and I specifically talked about Lorraine Wild's essay "Castles Made in, Castles Made of Sand," where I feel like she starts ta- in that she starts talking about she compares she essentially compares modernism and the idea of modernist graphic design to a fraternity where these sets of rules that you don't challenge and if you do challenge them you're kind of, you know, an outsider or, you know, like that you're doing it wrong. And so I think it's interesting that you were kind of you were a student there basically as those rules were really being challenged. How did that change how did that change your design work or your design process as you started kind of immersing yourself in making work with all of these new kind of ideas bubbling up inside of you?
1: Well, I'm trying to think, you know, I just, I think it probably um, impacted the content of the work, Mm. you know, the subjects that I was addressing. I remember this kind of early project where we had to deal with um, kind of uh, the new terminology um, of of design and to you know the the kind of vocabulary that a postmodern program right. a typical postmodern program would um, would incorporate um, and use as um, you know in, within the conversation to analyze and discuss the work. So I had. Metaphor, you know, so each student was given three different terms and in some ways had to represent those terms, I think, typographically and um, in terms of images only and then a combination of the two. Okay. Uh, I had metaphor, metonymy, and I I don't remember what the other term was, mimesis or something. (laughs) Um, Oh, irony. Irony was the other thing. interesting. So um, I remember for... I think, um, I think it was for either irony or metaphor. I had used the fireworks, you know, fireworks celebration, mm. you know, showing celebration, yes. but you know, it was confused with the, um, you know, the the wep- the bombs, weaponry going off. It, this must huh. have been around the time. Of, um, of Kuwait. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, you know, it was a confusion. It was about the confusion of what you were looking at. Okay. Um, you know, and it was hard, mm-hmm. you couldn't really distinguish whether you were looking at, you know, fireworks, sort of a celebration like Fourth of July, oh, or, you know, these kind of bombs going off. The imagery was pretty identical. Um, so, You know, it did, you know, it did seem like it affected it there. I think my work became more playful. It was clear that my palette was still a modern palette.
2: Right.
1: And I remember the struggle to try and adopt, um, a more kind of you know,
2: but right,
1: yeah. like I'm like a sort of more messy vernacular postmodern. But I realized that the now, of course, that I was trying to imitate that palette. It wasn't in my nature. Right. Uh, you know, I, you know, m- my gifts are in other realms than the formal ones, <laughs> and I'm kind. I'm kind of you know, I just I use the palette I have. To do what I I can do, yeah. Um, and um, what I learned from that is that um, form is language, right? And it's why I feel still so committed. Um, even though you know, I think we're just coming out of a period. Um, I hope we're coming out of a period where the fashion is a more restrained
2: yeah. palette. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, that you know. That that form allows us to think, and you know, if we don't have forms that can um, can represent and can help us think through and understand new ideas and knowledge, we're pretty fucked. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's why I now embrace, understand. Um, you know, and try and um, inspire students to play with visual form, not as an end in itself, but because it gives them the facility and tools to be able to represent ideas for which there is no form for them to be understood and communicated.
0: Right. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up because I was reading, also as I was preparing for this interview, I was reading about a class that you teach or that you did teach, I don't know if you still do, called mutant design. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which, it's, from what I understood from reading, it was this kind of cross-disciplinary thing where there's kind of all of these things coming together. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that a little bit because it sounds kind of like what you're talking about, of using design to kind of... Think about these ideas and you know see, seeing design almost as a way of kind of making your thinking visual in a sense mm-hmm. kind of.
1: Um, so the mutant design classes when I was um, was was still at the Jan van Eyck in Holland uh, I was hired to um, teach part-time at CalArts and somehow uh, I think they were interested um, in in expanding, you know, bringing in more media and more ideas about, you know, other forms of media than print mm-hmm. into the program. So I became sort of like the person talking about computers. And of course, when I was in Holland, um, you know, doing, I did a second post-grad there, what's, you know, equivalent to a grad education that would, oh. would, they post-grad in Europe. So, um, so I have, you know, two, um, two thesis projects in that, (laughs) that thesis project there, both were about design education, but that one there concentrated on how the computer was going to, uh, impact design and, um, and design pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so you know, so I sort of became attached to that area. So when I went to CalArts, Arts, back to CalArts Arts now to teach, um, it was to bring in that conversation. So the mutant design classes were really um, exploring how designers, graphic designers, might think about their contributions.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: how they might how they might think about these new um, arenas or platforms and Luckily, I think it was pretty quickly after I got to CalArts, CalArts as a faculty member that, um, that we received, uh, that we became part of the Apple Design Project, oh. which was something that happened in the 90s where the head of their advanced technology group was... Um, had initiated this project, um, I think, quite wisely to reach out to, uh, I think it was maybe 11 institutions a year um, across the world where they would provide mentors, uh, you know, a couple of mentors, and there'd be a themed project, and then um, at some point, Towards the end of the semester, everybody would convene in Cupertino at Apple headquarters and work, you know, kind of charrette for several days on a presentation. So it was kind of an each school participated for two years. So in the two years that we were participating, the mutant design class essentially was working on that project. So, one was, I think, the future of libraries, and I think one was the future of the book. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it seemed like a natural evolution for graphic designers to kind of think through ideas about a repository, mm-hmm. um, to think through the idea of reading. And encountering the reading experience and how um, computers might impact that. I mean, this is still, you know, reasonably early on in that. And so, and to have, um, you know, mentorship and some guidance from Apple was pretty significant. Yeah. Um, So, it was kind of ideal, you know, the questions particularly raised it. What it did for me, and I think this kind of remains um, an awareness and interest, um, is that when I was at Apple headquarters during, um, the, I think, the first year of our project, I was in the advanced technology offices, and I saw somebody's um, name tag on their door and it said I can't remember the name of the person but it said typographer. Huh. Um and so I just knocked on the door and I asked <laughs> this person about like what were they doing as a typographer in the advanced technology group. And it turned out that they were a linguist. Huh. Um and that what they were thinking about um was the counter of, like, reading and words and language. Um, oh,
2: wow. And,
1: you know, the, in other words, the shaping of ideas in written thought. Yeah. And I thought, you know, and then that was another big huh. light bulb that went off because I realized, oh, that is what typography is. You know, it's the yeah. shaping of thought. Um, and so that just shifted my consciousness about typography and what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so conversation suddenly to be able to have with students, you know, about the impacts of technology in the, you know, in the shaping of thought, um, you know, just kind of opened the way for students to experiment with that realm as graphic designers. So because, you know, where does that situate in a curriculum?
2: Yeah, (laughs)
1: yeah. That's why those classes sort of, that was the trajectory of these classes that were labeled mutant design. It was always mutant design, the future of the book, or mutant design, the blah, blah, blah. Um, Right. That's where that came from. So there's still, you know, you know, now it's, uh, you know, it just sort of pervades everything that we try and do at at CalArts. We try to be, you know, media agnostic, Mm -hmm. in theory, (laughs) not in (laughs) Yes. Um, so, uh, but I, I still think the sort of challenges and in questions are are still there. So the spirit of the mutant design classes remains, even if the the actual classes might have um, dispelled.
0: That's something I've been thinking about a lot. That I hadn't fully connected until you started describing that. Something, you know, I I feel like my undergrad kind of design education was very much in the spirit of the modernists and it was, you know, grid systems and color th- colors and forms and shapes and how to make a nice layout and I didn't really and and I'm not saying this to kind of put down my undergrad education but I never learned any kind of design theory or or heard about typography described the way you just described it And all the projects were, the form was decided first, and then you design for that, design a poster, design a book, you know, and then in in web design, you design a website. How do you, and, and this is something I've been thinking about as I've been working on this project and thinking about how people talk about design and that connection to how design is taught. How do you teach design in that kind of way? I don't I get that's kind of a big question. I don't know how to <laughs> how to simplify that a little bit, but how do you kind of inject that kind of theoretical kind of critical look that's so central to your own work to your students?
1: Well, okay, so a few things. We have to separate grad education from undergrad oh, education. Yeah, yeah. Um, so these classes were mainly oriented t- towards the. The grad students. Okay. Um, you know, so I do want to clarify that. That said, there's two things here. One is, um, I would say, you know, what's now more readily understood is that design has to be taught as context-based. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the teaching of typography, you know, if you orient it from the point of view of context rather than, you know, skill and mastery, that's, right. you know, that that reframes the type question. Now, this also becomes complicated by teaching itself, you know, and yeah. this is, yeah, I mean... <laughs> So the, um, you know, design education in America, which, you know, Kathy McCoy mm-hmm. has looked at, you know, the, the Swiss, Swiss design education in America, you know, and that, that took hold, you know, in part took hold because there was a practical pedagogy, yeah. you know, that could be passed on, um, that educators could measure
2: right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. judge
1: whether it was successful or not, you know, it yeah. became easy. So um, you know I you know I don't want to critique anybody um, teaching um, uh, typography from, from you know the letter to the word to the sentence yeah. <laughs> to the paragraph. Yeah. I you know because I, I understand and I get it. At the same time and I also want to say I don't and haven't taught typography. I mean, I think I taught it for maybe two semesters. It's okay. not my area. Yeah. So you know, I'm, I'm speaking theoretically, right. not practically. But I am intrigued with um, Denise Gonzalez Chris' book mm-hmm. Yeah. On, on typography and context mm-hmm. uh, because she does frame it that way. And she looks at typography not as a kind of, not. You know, it's about, well, as somebody said to me recently, you know, it's from the user point of view right. <laughs> rather than the typographer point of view, and that maybe, you know, it's, it really is about not mastery, but thinking about, you know, reading in different contexts and how diverse that is, um, you know, not just platforms, but environments, yeah. uh, you know, and functions. Um, that that's the starting point and also you know the, the issue of taste is a, another complex issue right. taste and meaning. Um, so all of that um, you know I think are are, are factors um, in sort of orienting typography. and I guess the other thing I was going to say about um, about the way that Denise is approaching this is it you know she says, that you go on, you know, some people may go on to become typographic masters. Mm -hmm. But for undergraduate students who are learning to to function um, as practitioners with uh, essential competencies um, that, um, you know, they they have to be able to use typography um, and if that's their concentration, right? To become masters of it, that becoming masters is the next step.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, so much. This this leads in exactly to the next question that I wanted to talk to you about because so much of this podcast for me, and so much of the things that I'm kind of working on and thinking about, are how we talk about design, and and specifically, like, what do we talk about when we talk about graphic design and I, I think I kind of started this project a little bit kind of against this idea of uh, and I I feel like I've said this in so many of the interviews also, but against this idea of a company redesigns their logo and then everybody kind of rushing to judgment of whether it's better than the old one or complaining about, you know, the kerning on the new logo or why did they pick this color to these kind of deeper questions about the context, about why there's a logo redesign. And I'm just using logos as an example, but you know, any type of design, that's often how design is talked about, is at that purely surface level. What what are what are kind of like issues or topics that you see kind of in the current design discourse that need to be talked about more or should be kind of examined more? And I think I think you have an interesting perspective as someone who's kind of worked through the nineties and saw the computer coming and the discourse around that, saw the internet and then the discourse around that. What's what's kind of happening now that needs to be talked about past that kind of surface mastery kind of you know aesthetic level?
1: Mm, that's a big one. I know, um,
0: I know. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you know the question I ask my theory students are, you know, to just think about, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. attempt to answer is like, why do things look the way they do, mm-hmm. you know, and I can't help but being obsessed with why do they all look the same.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that to me is like scary, you know, because of the homogeneity. hmm of it, and because of, you know, our conversation a few minutes ago, it means that if, if form is the, you know, the sort of the representation of of knowledge and ideas and thoughts, it seems like everything is looking pretty narrow. yeah. So, you know, hopefully that question, why do things look the way they do, opens up A crack. Right, that's interesting. Because it it seems like everything is sort of seamless right now. And so it seems like just opening up that crack to be able to become aware of how seamless it's all become and how homogeneous and how, you know, it seems like the values that are driving the worker narrow. Um but you know it seems like what are the drivers you know or what are we pushing against
2: <laughs> Right yeah
1: you know all seem to be the, the 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 big question of the moment in fact we just had um in the last few days we've had Andrew Blauvelt Paul mm. Shear and Jonathan Barnbrook at CalArts Oh and, wow you know, it was interesting the sort of yeah this sort of overlap, particularly, you know, Paul Shearer and Jonathan Bonbrook, yeah. um, yeah. you know, both sort of talking about, you know, kind of mediocrity, you know, yeah. <laughs> how, you know, this kind of comfort level in kind of mediocrity. Um, but, you know, I think everybody knows, you know, or two things that they were saying, and when say everybody knows, is that you have to push against something. You have to feel, um, angry, you know, or you, um, are feeling some kind of passion to speak about something of consequence. Um, but other than, you know, Trump is horrible. It's, (laughs) it seems hard to get beyond that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, so. I, um, I've been thinking a lot about there's this certain aesthetic now that's kind of, comes to mind when people say critical graphic design or you know speculative design it now has this certain <laughs> right. look to it and I yeah. feel like that ties exactly into it where it's like oh you know if we're going to do something that's critical design or design criticism it has to look like this and then it's just falling back into the same traps that you know we fell in with modernism or postmodern it was all about just kind of giving the appearance of being a certain way instead of asking, why is it that way? And then even more, why does, why does everything just look the same in general? Right. I have, right. I have uh, just two more questions just to kind of wrap it up. Um, and I kind of wanted to tie it back to your book about California design. And the two questions, I'll give them to you both at the same time, and you can kind of pick what you're interested in or, or maybe how they um, – whatever one is easier to answer first but i'm interested in how writing and the process of writing fits into your design practice and then and then the second part of that question is how did the act of writing your book and researching that book change you as a designer or change the design that you've been working on since since it came out
1: um the minute you said writing. Yeah. You know, I could just <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just like relive pain oh, agony. No. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It is so it is probably the thing throughout my career I most wanted to and want to be able to do well. Yeah. You know, <laughs> me too. Otherwise, a you're locked into yourself.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Um and you know, two, you, you it's like, okay, how can you make the contribution that you wanna make? And three, how can you wrangle and be and be challenged with your own ideas? Right. You know, so like writing is crucial um and agonizing at the same time. Yeah. Um uh, I, I um Admire people who are um, gifted in that realm, and I can see it. Um, I can see it in their writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Those who have the—it's almost as if there's no separation between their brains and what comes out of their hands. Yeah. And then me, who's just like, uh, you know, right, 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 and then I have to look at it and go, that makes no sense. I don't know what I'm saying here, and so. You know, again, it it becomes a kind of like tool, Um, but, you know, I think like any writer, you realize that writing writes to you. You don't necessarily write writing. It's not like you're just pouring out your thoughts. Um, Your thoughts are being shaped by your writing and you begin to um, see what you're thinking in the writing, and you are forced to answer the question of what am I saying here, what am I trying to get at here. Yeah,
0: yeah, Um, I love that.
1: Yeah, you know, but it's not, it's a parallel process to designing as well.
0: Yeah. My last question was kind of how the book, you know, changed you, or changed your design work since then, In the act of researching that, and going through that agonizing process of writing. Did that filter back into your work at all? Into your kind of design work?
1: So, it um Okay, so I learned a number of things. I'm going to talk about it in terms of like learning, okay. you know, I became aware of the impacts. So, um I learned how much I uh, appreciate value um and um just recognize the significance to what I do to have amazing collaborators. Mm. So, you know, the book uh, had a lot of collaborators on it, students, um, particularly the person working with me at the time, Derek Schultz, who's now at the New York Times, the conversations that he and I would have and the things he would create out of that conversation um, you know the the diagrams that i did um with cat cat and ben woodlock right. you know just shaping those and the, the 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 conversation i would have with them and the struggle to figure out the form that those would need to take um, you know just amazing delight um you know just that um, the, the, the thing that sort of seesaw that is not yeah. only about delight but uh, about play um, and in the and it results in the most satisfying outcomes and that book is a result of those collaborations. The other two people that were sort of vital was the publisher. Diana Murphy at Metropolis, who mm. just held, you know, even when I was like, oh, what, you know, what am I doing here? You know, yeah. she was, she held the vision, you know, so she ser- served like a kind of the um, the creative bastion on you know she she held that vision for me even when I was sort of like wavering a bit, mm-hmm. you know, thinking I needed to go off in a in a slightly different direction.
2: Yeah.
1: Um so that was sort of vital and the other person was Ann Thompson, my my editor who I call, you know, my Vulcan mind mouth.
2: <laughs> yeah so
1: that's that's what we did. You know, she was she was the voice in my head saying, now what were you trying to say here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's another way we could put that, you know, so those were vital, vital people. So I, I do want to acknowledge the dispersal of credit, um, you know, and how um, that made me uh, sort of aware of the sandbox I want to play in. Um, So the other thing about um, the book that were sort of lessons or things that I took away was of course a kind of confidence, you know, in how I did, you know, ultimately play to my strengths, you know, and recognize what those were and the story I wanted to tell and how I wanted to tell it, Mm -hmm. you know, what I think was necessary. Like for instance, uh, my, my interest in other forms of, um, of design history writing that it didn't just need to be scholarly in its approach that's not at all to say that scholarship isn't significant it is it's just the uh, the voice that's used and the kinds of techniques or or methods the most radical in the book being denise gonzalez crisp fiction Mm. um that brings together women who are not physically in the same space um, nor in t- terms of the, the time in which they were working and to bring them all together to sort of measure what conversations they might have and what they share in common um, was um, an interesting device. Um, so you have Lorraine Wilde who did two essays in Michael Worthington and Denise all doing very different kinds of um or utilizing different kinds of approaches to yeah. reveal um, historical information and viewpoints. And then, um, you know, recognizing that, um, you know, that people look at images and the images needed to right. make the argument themselves and that they yeah. needed to be contextualized as if, you know, like anything you present, you know, it's the context, the context that makes right, it, right. you know, that buoys it. Um, and so, you know, thinking about the individual design of the presentations and that the text was, re- you know, that, that people could like dip into it, mm-hmm. that they didn't need to read this in a kind of linear linear way. Um, you know, uh, all of these, I mean, everything was uh, specific to yeah. all the decisions that were made about the content and the types of content um, were meant to provide different ways of thinking about and perspective and interpretations and to show that there were different ways uh, to have uh, these interpretations of the this work and right. its significance and what it was saying. So all of that led to this next big project that I've been working on since the book, and again with many important team members, um, and uh, this initiative is called Making History.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, so what I realized from the book, another sort of pain point of the book, was the stuff that didn't get in it. <laughs> yeah. You know. So it's it wasn't and was never meant to be a compendium um or a survey it's not all the important so-called important graphic designers it's not meant to be a canon um and what i realize is that there's a lot of work um that is ending up in trash cans um that its that our history is actually disappearing because there are not enough researchers or scholars um to actually Or archives to actually preserve this work, so our history by the second is sort of disappearing. So um, I wanted there to be um, more, more material that was preserved, and more ways of, you know, just uh, kind of providing a collection slash archive that others could be inspired to make something of it, to um, yeah. to interpret it how they saw its relevancy. So making history is um, a tool platform for a virtual collection of graphic design
0: that's crowdsourced. I love that. I think that's so exciting. I think that's the perfect, I know you have to head out soon so i think that's like a perfect way to kind of wrap this up thank you so much um for talking with me i thought this was a lovely conversation i i feel like i learned so much I, I really appreciate your time
1: well i really really enjoyed this conversation as well so um thank you I,
0: it's... this episode was recorded on february 15th 2017 we're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and at surface.fm Thanks for listening.